Good morning, everyone. Well, it's already the second Sunday of this audio sermon experiment. And for some reason, it feels like it's been way more than that. I hope all of you are learning the ropes of your particular distancing protocol and not wearing down because of it. We should remember that God is with us and the Holy Spirit indwells us and we are in Christ. Every one of us needs to constantly remain vigilant as we find ourselves missing our gatherings as the body of Christ. We all know that, but it's important to use the missing as an impetus to more intentionally pray, read, and study the Word and make use of solid encouragement from trusted Christian resources. God's working mightily in each of us in spite of the absence of our normal day-to-day routines. There are so many ways to connect and encourage one another, and many of you have already utilized some very creative means of doing so. So keep it up. Amen. Today we're continuing in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. We finished a paragraph last week verses 12 through 19, that was a series of negative statements, actually a list of seven consequences if Christ did not rise from the dead. And today, following the first words of verse 20, which are, but in fact, we see a completely opposite kind of list about the doctrine of, of Christ's resurrection. For the Apostle Paul, this is a historical fact with implications lasting through eternity itself. And the more we learn and enjoy these facts as they apply to us, the more we should become just as impressed as this Apostle. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13? I'll be reading starting at verse 20 and finish with verse 28. And just uh, uh, an explanation before I start. Right in the middle of verse 27 is a phrase that can put you off just a little bit, and I might read it twice with another way to translate it that might make it clear even as we just read through the text the first time here. So, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Or you can read this translation. It is obvious that this does not include God himself who put all things in subjection under Christ. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, use your word today to open our eyes and hearts to the magnificent redemptive plan that will be consummated one day when Jesus returns. May your Holy Spirit fill our hearts with the confidence of our place with you as we realize once again what Jesus accomplished in his mission to save us, to be your people forever. Deal with each of our hearts to strengthen and encourage us in our faith and dependence upon you. Protect us in these turbulent times. Use us to proclaim the gospel. Use these unusual circumstances to prune out of us our self-centeredness and unwillingness to bow to you as our Lord. Let us trust in or even see your eternal purposes in our day-to-day struggles and circumstances. Teach us now, O God, from your word, what we should know and what we need to know. In Jesus' precious name, amen. In verses 20 through 22, we could name this short section, In Adam and in Christ. We read in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul has already supplied the evidence for Christ's resurrection in previous verses, which is and should be sufficient for each of us. What were the two main points of evidence for his resurrection back in verses 3 through 8? Well, first was the empty tomb proving his death, and then that he wasn't there, which is the second, the numerous list of appearances that were witnessed by so many and explained why he wasn't in the tomb. Christ did what he did and furnished us with his word, so that we, as his people, do not need any more proof 
of his resurrection. Remember, though, some of the Corinthians were denying a resurrection. So Paul is still walking these people, along with everyone else, through the positive doctrinal teachings that are attached to a real bodily resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean? Well, simply that Christ's resurrection marked the initial resurrection from a whole group to follow. His resurrection is the representative beginning of the resurrection of believers. First fruits is an agricultural term and signals that the first sheaf of the forthcoming grain harvest will be followed by the rest of the sheaves. So Paul means that Christ's resurrection is a down payment for his people's resurrection. It's a guarantee that believers will be bodily raised. Verses 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, we learn that because of Adam and Eve's sin, they and their descendants became subject to death. In our verse 22, Paul wrote, For as in Adam all die, That means that the Lord chose the first man to be the representative who did what we all would have done if we had been put in the garden instead of him. Paul's saying that death entered the world because of sin committed by man. And death, being caused by a human being, can be made ineffective only by another human being. Well, the opposite of death is what? The resurrection from the dead, which Christ accomplished. He triumphed over death and so is able to set free from death those who belong to him. Jesus Christ, as both God and man, conquered death and rose victoriously from the grave. His resurrection has already taken place, but his people's resurrection must wait. Notice also that in verse 22, the preposition in is before the name Adam and the name Christ, in Adam, in Christ. This is another indication that Adam is the head of the human race and Christ is the head of God's people. By the way, the grammar here indicates that Paul is confirming that these two people represent real historical persons. So what this verse means can be put something like this. Just as all those who by nature have their origin in Adam die, so all those who by faith are incorporated in Christ will be made alive. 
All people face death because of Adam's sin, but only those who are in Christ receive everlasting life because of Christ's resurrection. The Lord comes is the theme of verses 23 through 28. We'll take this section by section, beginning with verses 23 through 24. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. And when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is a good overview of what's to come. And it is really a short version of what he's getting ready to put some meat on. If we get these two verses right, then what follows will be a whole lot clearer. So we can divide these verses up into four parts, and I'll call them A, B, C, and D, just to help keep them straight. First in part A, the first part of verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the the first fruits. Now remember, the verse before, he was talking about in Christ shall all be made alive. So how does that work? But in each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, which is part B. This phrase, each in his own order, means first in rank and next order. This is not used in a military sense here, though it is in other places. In other words, as Paul says in first, I mean, excuse me, in Colossians 1, verse 18, he, Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, in first place, the supremacy. In other words, Christ is the firstborn from among those raised from the dead, and he has supremacy. Then in part B, the rest of verse 23, then, or afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Christ does come again, because Christ has been raised, all his people who are dead or alive at his coming will be raised and glorified. Let me say that one more time because it's so wonderful. When Christ does come again, because he has been raised, all his people who are dead or alive when he comes will be raised and glorified. The third part, C, First part of verse 24. Then comes the end. A hint at how then is used here is to say thereupon. Thereupon comes the end. So with this word then, 
Paul does not introduce the resurrection of a third group, but simply introduces the end, which means the consummation or the end of time. In other words, the word then does not necessarily introduce an interlude or a long period of time between the resurrection of the believers and the end of time. Because of how brief this expression is, then comes the end, I do not personally believe it supports the idea of an intermediate kingdom before the consummation of the age. What it does point to is that after all this has happened, the age is finished. The end suggests that Christ's redemptive work for his people has concluded. Also notice that this short expression grammatically stands by itself, which supports the conclusion above. Paul follows this by including several clauses that inform us about Christ's work in the end. Delivering or handing over the kingdom to the Father. Destroying or abolishing every rule and every authority and power. And then going on in the next verses, destroying death in verse 26. And subjecting himself to God that he may be all in all in verse 28. The end comes then, part D, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Let me say that one more time. The end comes then when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The word destroying or abolishing is the idea of making the ruling powers ineffective by terminating and setting them aside. This expression that includes the three designations here, rule, authority, and power, that expression was used often by the Jews to designate demons. And the context indicates that it's used that way here. So after the resurrection of believers, Christ destroys or abolishes the spiritual forces of evil. The text indicates that this is not a long, drawn-out epic battle. Instead, what it pictures is the end of such conflict in a single, comprehensive, definitive action. Then, as we also see in this verse, 24b, he delivers or hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And what is that? That's the mark that the end has finally come. In verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is a 
divine necessity that Christ must rule. Why? Because God the Father has given his Son the mandate both to reign and to complete the divine plan of redemption. In the last half of this verse, don't worry about trying to figure out which person of the Trinity, the Father and Son specifically, is being referred to when we see the words he and his. That may be confusing us about who did exactly what. The context actually does show that both God the Father and Christ can function alternatively as subjects of these verbs. But the picture here is very clear in communicating that Christ victoriously completes his mandate. He puts all his enemies under his feet. In verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why is this the last enemy? Well, for human beings, as we all know, this force of death is what has ruled over us since the time of Adam's sin. It's certainly something that cannot be denied. And everyone must face it at some point. Everyone. Mankind still raises its fists towards God in defiance and rebellion. But no matter who it is, death wins every time. Isn't it interesting that our world right now, once again, must consider something that most people spend their whole lives trying to get away from facing? A world pandemic. This is why our text calls it the last enemy. Human beings cannot conquer death. Yet, glory be to God, death's complete and utter domination is abolished when all Christ's people have been raised from the dead and are glorified. It's really simple. If there is no resurrection, death continues to hold its power. But if there is a resurrection of all the believers throughout all of time. The power of death ends once and for all. It's time to try to sum this up so far. God entrusted the kingdom to Christ for the period basically lasting from his first coming to his second coming. In Matthew 28:18 when Jesus said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." That was really his enthronement declaration. He was going to his throne to reign when he ascended. 
His universal reign began with his resurrection and ascension to his throne. His spiritual enemies, who have rule, authority, and power, were placed in submission to him, as Peter says about Christ's ascension in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who, or Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, even though that's true, during Christ's reign, they, the angels, authorities, and powers, do continue to exercise their demonic influence, but they are still subject to Christ. And that will keep stay that way until he destroys or abolishes their power at the end of time when he effectively eliminates the spiritual forces of evil. Then at the end of time, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he has utterly destroyed all the hostile spiritual forces. Now, at this point in our text, at verse 26 and ready for verse 27 and 28, Paul does something very interesting. All the way through verse 28, he mirrors what he said in verses 24 and 25. In other words, there is a definite symmetry a resemblance between verses 24 and 25 and then verse 28 and back to 27. A mirror image. Well, what about 26? Well, it's in the middle. Yes, it's the center verse. Verses 24 and 25 flow to it. And verses 27 and 28 flow back out of it or out from it. Remember what verse 26 is? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what we have here is Paul fleshing out much of what he is teaching about Christ's second coming and the end of time. In verse 24, he starts with the end. Remember? Then comes the end. And if you look at the very last phrase in our text today, verse 28b, notice the resemblance. That God may be all in all. That's it, folks. That's how God wraps it up, and that's what he does. Then comes the end in verse 24, and at the end of our text in verse 28b, that God may be all in all. So moving on, there's four of these pairs. The rest of verse 
24, no, in the middle of verse 24, we read, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. The mirror of that is in the first part of verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Don't worry about the verbiage, just look at the resemblance. Verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Delivering the kingdom to his Father. The third pair is at the end of verse 24. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. And in the last part of verse 27. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Remember what that's basically saying is that it's obvious or plain that this does not include God himself who put all things in subjection under Christ. So after destroying every rule and every authority and power, Christ does this. And in what we read in verse 27, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted God, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. Now, right there, we see that in one part of this passage, Paul says in verse 24 that Christ does this. And in this last half, we see that he says the Father does this. We'll get to that in just a minute. One more pair, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, for Christ must reign until Christ has put all of his enemies under Christ's feet, his feet. But look at the beginning of verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. There again, we see both the Father and the Son doing this and in the middle the last enemy to be destroyed is death this is worth pondering later don't let it confuse you now it took me a while i had to draw a chart which helps visualize and it helps understand the depth and what paul thinks is so wonderful and extraordinary for god to do for us so let's ask that question. How can the Son be both subject and equal to the Father? Well, Charles Hodge gives a simple example that may help a little bit. In one sense, the Son is subject to, and in another sense, he is equal to. The Son of a King may be the equal of his Father in every attribute of his nature, though officially inferior. So the eternal Son of God may be co-equal with the Father, though officially subordinate. 
Now this means that in his office as Redeemer and Mediator, Christ is subject to God the Father. When he has completed the task God has assigned to him, he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God. Well, the benefits aimed our way just because God made us his people and we didn't deserve any favor at all should continue to keep us in a state of wonder, gratitude, and praise even or especially in times like we're experiencing right now. And a passage like this should keep us studying and pondering really for the rest of our lives here on this earth. Our great God will finish what he started. That's a certainty that we can bank on every single day no matter what the circumstances are. The way God has saved us is beyond our comprehension in so many ways. God the Father commissioned his eternal son to redeem a people and has given him all authority to reign as the king of kings. The son will give his kingdom back to the father at the end when Christ has completed all of his kingdom work. God then is the ultimate sovereign, but the Son will still exercise his power and sit on his throne with those who belong to him, which we know from other passages. Jesus is a brother to all those he has redeemed, but he will always have the preeminence and the supremacy. Paul puts it in very few words, words that still boggle our minds but thrill our hearts here at the end of our passage, that God may be all in all, and this includes all of creation, all of the universe, absolutely everything. This is not teaching that God is in everything that he created. He is not a part of the things he created in that way. But it does mean that he rules, reigns over it all. And it'll be so apparent when we are with him forever and ever how much, how much and how far his power goes and reaches, which includes all the other characteristics that we know are true about him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we as a body of Christ are physically apart at present, but with one voice, we bow before you in awe. You sent your son for us and captured our hearts, turning us from self-centered wretchedness to purposes beyond our comprehension. Jesus made us able to stand before you 
by taking our sin upon himself and by clothing us in his own righteousness. We praise you now and look forward to an eternity in your presence. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Paul says much the same thing in Romans 11, verse 36, which we'll close with today. He writes, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Love y'all. Take care.